have your Bibles with you, please open them up with me tonight to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 17, and I hope tonight to look at uh, chapters 17 and 18, title of tonight's message is Preserving a People, Preserving a People. You'll remember that this is a time in the nation of Israel wherein Moses has brought them out of Egypt. They are now in the wilderness. They have been receiving instruction via God through Moses and Mount Sinai. The tabernacle has been constructed, and now the Lord is beginning to give them uh, the laws for them, them, as, them as a nation, the, the rules of, of what he was, is desiring of them and the way he wants them to conduct themselves within the promised land. Now, they're not in the promised land yet. They're out of Egypt and in the wilderness getting this instruction preparing them for the promised land. You have to remember they came out of Egypt, which was a very pagan culture. So they had all kinds of bad examples of worship, of, of uh, sexuality, of morality. Everything that they saw in Egypt was pagan and sinful. And so God has brought them out, kind of, kind of isolated them, quarantined them, if you will, and now really trying to, to, to prepare their hearts for going into a new land. Because the land that they're going into, the land of Canaan, is also filled with idolatry and pagan cultures and all kinds of bad examples. So God has them in this season of really kind of instructing them, readying them, and he's trying to lay in the, the legal system that will preserve them as his people. God is trying to preserve a people for himself, that he would be able to use them for his purpose in the earth. He wants them to be an example. He wants them to influence the world, not the other way around, the world influencing them. He wants also to preserve a lineage because Messiah is promised through this Jewish nation. And so he is looking to keep a people for himself wherein he can demonstrate his glory demonstrate his uh, idea for mankind, and then ultimately bring salvation for mankind. And it's not unlike our journey, really, as we come to Christ, we come out of the old man, that Egypt of, our, of all of us, all of our old lives, that coming out of you know, living in the world, living the way we used to live. We come to faith in Christ, and God begins to transform our hearts and lives and begins to renew our minds in order to bring us into the promised land, that place of fulfillment, that place of uh, victorious Christian living. And so I think there's some good thought here for us, and uh, we'll take a look at these chapters. I'll, I'll summarize some and read some, but uh, let's get started here tonight. Chapter 17, my thought here is that we see the Lord looking to preserve worship. You remember he's just given instruction on the Day of Atonement. He's set up the priesthood, the tabernacle. And now he's going to give some additional rules to preserve the worship that he is instituting into the land. Verses 1 through 9, we'll see that he's going to be speaking about meals and sacrifice. Follow with me, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll summarize. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, <clears throat> excuse me, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house excuse me, what, whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or who kills it outside the camp 
and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priests and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And also you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, whoever offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. So what we see here is the Lord kind of giving some instructions about the killing and eating of animals so long as they are out there in the wilderness. Now, you'll remember at this time, manna was still being provided on a daily basis. So they had a regular nourishment from the Lord. But God is also wanting to instruct them on these, if they're looking to uh, kill and eat animals. At this time, they're all camped close to the tabernacle. And what the Lord desires is that they would bring those animals to the tabernacle and offer them to the Lord, that they would be, what he says, a peace offering. You remember when we looked earlier what the peace offering uh, was to represent. It was the idea of come and have your meals with the Lord, a peace offering. You would offer this to the Lord. The priests would participate. Some of it would be burned, and that would be what the Lord the Lord's portion was, and then you and your household would also enjoy a portion. So God is trying to bring the nation into fellowship. He wants them to be regularly fellowshipping with him, and he's instituting practical ways wherein they would not just kind of be doing their own thing and forget about their walk and relationship with the Lord. Now, later on, when they finally move into the promised land, and they spread out throughout the land, and they're you know, geographically, they're removed from real close proximity to the tabernacle and ultimately the temple, then God would bring in new rules for this. But today, and where he's speaking to them now, they are all close proximity to the tabernacle. They're there gathered in the camp, and the Lord doesn't want any new kind of ritual or offering services to develop in their midst. Again, they'd come out of a pagan culture. They were getting ready to go into a pagan culture. And this was a lot of the idolatrous worship that would go on in these cultures. They would offer animal sacrifices to their gods. And the Lord doesn't want them kind of mingling with that. They don't, he doesn't want them offering sacrifices. You notice he says specifically, no more offering to demons. Don't get involved with anything you might have been involved with in the past. Nor do I want you to get involved uh, with anything that we're getting ready to do in Canaan as I move you into the promised land. Lord trying to preserve and keep a purity of their worship and their sacrifice life. He wants to have their fellowship, and he wants to preserve this, this offering that he, uh, that he has instituted, that it would not uh, begin to mingle out with the, the rest of the land. Notice the, you were to come, if you were going to bring an offering, you had to bring it to the tabernacle. The Lord didn't want them making offerings out away from the tabernacle. He had a very strict come to the tabernacle. It needed to be offered through the priesthood. This is the formula that he'd given them 
for their worship and for their relationship with him. And, of course, we know this from our vantage point that so much of what was going on in the Day of Atonement, so much of what was going on through the sacrifice and the blood and the offerings was to ultimately point to the Lord Jesus Christ. God was trying to paint a picture. God was trying to tutor them, train them, introduce the understanding of what ultimately would be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And so the Lord is trying to preserve that picture. He doesn't want it becoming kind of polluted over the years to come as men just start offering uh, their own offerings in their own way and in their own style and thus lose the imagery that God is trying to preserve that this sacrifice system would always lead and point to Christ. God is very exclusive. God has but one way in which he is willing to receive us in, in, in way of worship. We don't just come and worship the Lord any old way we want. We come to worship God through his son, Jesus Christ. We come, we have access to God. We are, uh, God is approachable only because and only through what he has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. So God being very exclusive with the nation here, preserving this uh, manner in which they would come and approach him and worship him. And so it's true today. We have... Uh, a whole lot of different ideas about how to come to God today, don't we? We have a lot of uh, different religions, and we even have, you know, even within Christian circles, looking to kind of accommodate and be a little more inclusive. But God is very exclusive. God has provided but one way by which men can be saved. I remind you of a couple of verses. Acts 4 and verse 12. This is Peter speaking. Now, there, now, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Also, Paul writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. There aren't many ways to God. There aren't many ways in which God will receive men. Oh, but what if you're really sincere? And what if you really mean well? Won't God just welcome sincerity? No. People can be sincere, and you know this. People can be sincerely wrong. No, God has provided, according to the Scriptures, but one way and one name by which men must approach him. And it is the name of Jesus Christ. And so God is looking for relationship with his people, but he's looking for it on his terms. I can't emphasize that enough tonight, and we'll see it going through our, the rest of our study. God is looking for relationship with him on his terms. He is God. <laughs> you and I are not. There is but one God, and we're not it. And he is the authority. He is authority on worship. He is the authority on morality. He is the authority over all the universe. So we see him preserving sacrifice. We read on here and we'll also notice that God is going to speak now of the sanctity of blood. And of course, we know how important blood is in, in salvation because it was the blood of Jesus that was shed for us at the cross. And God right here, early on, letting the people know how important blood would be. Verse 10, 
And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall, you, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. And therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Verse 15, And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. Something about the blood, very important in the mind of God. And he's introducing this now, the sanctity, saying, first of all, that the life of all flesh is in the blood. Now, we know that to be, of course, biologically true. Blood, of course, brings so much life and nutrient and oxygen and all the things that the body needs are carried by the blood. But God is speaking more and more than just in natural terms here. We know that he, again, is pointing to an ultimate work of Jesus Christ. And so much of the New Testament talks about the blood of Jesus Christ. So God being very consistent, what he said in the old was merely pointing to and representing what he would ultimately do in the new. The blood is the life force. And it would be that blood of Jesus Christ that would be offered for atonement. The cleansing of sin, the payment, the sacrifice, the redemption for, of, for your sin, saving you from judgment, saving you from your guilt. Another life has been offered in your stead, and that life has been represented by its blood. So it was true in the animal sacrifices, and so we know it would ultimately be true in the life and work of Jesus Christ. Again, let me re remind you of some New Testament verses that talk so much about the blood of Jesus. Hopefully, we'll have those up for you. We have anything going on up there tonight? We do. Okay. And it's a little small. I don't know if you can see all that. Uh, but I'll, I'll read it out with you as well. The blood of Jesus Christ redeemed us. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. God didn't buy you with money. Uh, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Also Romans 5.9, not only have we been redeemed, we've also been justified. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We've been washed, Revelation 1.5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We've been brought near, according to Ephesians 2.13, but 
Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once uh, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been cleansed, 1 John 1, 7, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We've been purchased. Acts 20, 28, shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. You see, the blood of Jesus has accomplished so much in regard to our salvation. The blood of Jesus, we sing about it. It's throughout the New Testament. It's throughout the Old Testament. This blood, this life that would be offered in your stead. What that blood represents is the life of Christ. The sinless life. The perfect life offered for those that lead sinful lives. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. An exchange was made, and it was paid through the blood. Such an important concept to understand. God laying it very clearly in Leviticus. Listen, the blood is special. The blood is not to be part of your diet. You're you're not to, to consider the blood as just like any other thing that you would eat or consume. The blood has a special purpose for you in this nation. It's to be used on the altar to atone for your sins. And, of course, he was speaking ultimately of Jesus Christ. It kind of, it, and we'll move on here to chapter 18, but just let me close with just a couple of thoughts here on chapter 17. This whole idea of worshiping God the way he wants to be worshipped. Um, you know, I, I think of even our own worship life or our own, let's just call it our own spiritual life. We have a lot of different ideas sometimes. People have different ideas about uh, the way they would like to worship God or what God is looking for. And, and you'll hear it, all kinds of variety of thinking. I, I've heard it, you know, all, all kinds of silly things over the years. Oh, don't worry about me. I, I got something worked out with the man upstairs, you know. What do you have worked out? Because God only has one thing worked out. And if you're not on that program, you're, you've got nothing worked out. But you get the idea that, that and it's, it's common to, I think, our our thinking is that somehow if we're sincere in me and we mean well, then surely God, you know, sees that and recognizes that as that and, and will just welcome that. That really I can come to God on my terms, uh, as I'm comfortable, in the way that I desire, in the way that I want, and when I want, and if I'm sincere, I'm sure him being a loving God will welcome me on my terms. And that's not a biblical thought. The Bible is very clear that God is loving. And and in fact, God has done all of the moving towards us for relationship. He's the initiator. But he is not now looking for you to create your own ideas and your own way in which you would approach him. Because when you do that, what you do is you reject what he has done. It's, you don't maybe think of it or you don't say it out loud, but what people do is, I'm not interested in what you've done, Jesus, and what you've done for me, God. I want to come and work out my relationship with you on terms that I'm comfortable with. Never mind what you've done. Never mind the cross. And, in, and when you do that, you actually reject the only means by which God has made available for you to have relationship with him because we're lost in sin. Sin separates us from the Lord. And in order to draw near to Him, there must be this sacrifice, this way that Jesus Christ has provided. 
So as we come to the Lord, as we worship the Lord, as we fellowship with him, I want to know what he has prescribed. That's why we study the word. God, what is it that you are looking for? I don't want to bring to you what I'm interested in bringing. I want to bring my, my, my life, my heart to you in the way that you desire. And I think it, fall, it flows right down into the way that we would worship. I don't like singing. I'm not into music. And yet the Lord throughout the scripture says, sing, make melody in your heart to the Lord. So the Lord seems to be into music. Oh, you mean I can't love the Lord unless I sing? No. <laughs> but I, I would say that if you really love the Lord, you'll, you will sing. You will express that in song. There is, a, there is a gift of music that God has given to all. Well, I don't have a good voice. God's not listening to tonal quality. God's just looking for a heart that's making melody in his heart in love toward the Lord. In all areas of your walk with the Lord, you want to be really in walking in the light of what he has provided, not carving your own ideas and your own ways, but look to worship him in the way that he has prescribed. All right, we move on, chapter 18. As we saw in chapter 17, God preserving their worship life, now God is going to look to preserve sexual morality. He's going to talk about incest, adultery, homosexuality, and bestiality. You know, you read these passages, and we'll read it, some of it here in just a moment, and you almost wonder, gee, Lord, did you really have to get that specific and that kind of down into the details? And, of course, all you have to do is look at what's going on in our culture and in the world today, and, yes, Lord, you had to be very specific. You had to be very clear, and thank God he is. First of all, verses 1 through 5, the Lord is going to give his authority as the basis for the moral instructions that he's going to give. Follow with me, verses 1 through 5, and I'll explain. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, you shall not do nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You see the Lord really kind of being very repetitive here. This is the authority on, on which I'm giving, giving these instructions. I am the Lord. I am your God. I am the creator. I am the maker of all life, of all the universe. God has moral authority to give instruction on how we should live. And he establishes this. He's getting ready to give instruction. These are not suggestions. God's not giving hints on, or tips. God is, is saying, look, I am God. Don't follow the, the foolishness of the land that you've come out of. And don't be swept away by the foolishness and the ideas of men that you're getting ready to go into. I'm the Lord. Listen to what I have to say. Follow my word and you will be blessed. Follow my instructions. They will be life to you. And God is establishing his authority over his people as their God. And you know, that needs to be heard loud and clear in our own hearts and lives again. 
Well, I think this. Well, I really don't think that. Well, you know, I heard somebody say this. Well, I thought, well, you know, but I know this person. He's all kinds of ideas and opinions and, and uh, you know, how we should live and what's really right. And, well, that may be working for you. I am the Lord. Listen now. These are the instructions that I am giving for your living. And specifically now concerning sexual morality and purity. Let's consider what God says, the the highest authority in the universe, the creator of our lives, the creator of our sexuality. What does he say concerning moral standards? uh, Verses 6 through 18, he'll speak very specifically about incestuous relations. I'll take the time to read it. You'll see it's a little bit detailed, but God being very, very clear. Uh, You'll see this phrase repeated, uh, the idea of uncovering nakedness. And that is simply a phrase meaning sexual relations or contact. So when he says there should be no uncovering of nakedness, what he means is there there should be no sexual contact or relationship. Verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. Boy, he's going to remind them he is the Lord. He's got the authority on this. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is near of kin to your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is near of kin to your mother. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are near of kin to her. It is wickedness. Nor shall you take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. Again, very specific. Brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, stepbrothers, stepmothers, stepsisters, God covering all of it. Being very clear that sexual relationship is not designed for inner family. It is designed for a husband and a wife alone. And, you, and, and, and nor does marrying in an incestuous relationship qualify. This uncovering nakedness would include being married. Obviously, you will not marry anyone like this because there's no sexual relationship allowed. Now, we know even today that, you know, just um, scientifically that it's not good, you know, for the gene pool to be, you know, the impurities of, of, the, of the human gene, if, if, 
too much inter-family marrying goes on, you know, deformities begin to show up in the children. So certainly a practical application, but God is much more interested now in the spiritual integrity of his people. And again, you, you kind of wonder, well, gosh, a lot of details there. Do you, re- do you really think you need to spell it out? Yeah, you do. You needed to then, first of all, because in, e- in Egypt they practiced all this kind of thing. And in Canaan, the land they were going to, this was all going on. And God wanted to prevent and preserve his people from those practices. But I would have to say, look, we know this even today. The tragedy of abuse and sexual impropriety going on within homes. And it does damage to the household. It damages families. It damages marriages. It, it affects children. Now, God can heal and God can restore. And we believe that he is a God of restoration. But these things are for our protection. God is not looking to limit. God is not looking to steal away your sexuality. He's looking to preserve it and protect it that it might enjoy its fullest intended blessing. And God is speaking here. I am the Lord. This is not up for debate or or consideration. No, this is what God himself is wanting to say. We look on and we see he speaks specifically concerning adultery. And you shall, verse 19, and you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. Just in case, well, you know, she's not my sister, she's not, I, she qualifies on all those, but, you know, she's somebody else's wife. That's adultery. That's wrong too. No sexual relationship outside of marriage. He goes on, verse 21, And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now you might wonder why is this passage kind of in the middle of this sexuality passage. And it's, it's, uh, this is when they would actually offer their children, their live children, as a sacrifice to the pagan god of Molech. And uh, there's archaeology uh, discoveries that, that show the horror of that. They would actually put their living children into the midst of the fire, and they would be burned to death. And part of this was an offering. Uh, it was considered to be something of a fertility offering. So that's most likely why the Lord has included it here, because it, it's just part of uh, the whole idea of having children and, and propagating your family. Uh, don't fall into these pagan practices that you think are going to actually somehow increase fertility in your household. And God comes against this here, and he comes against it in other places also. But he goes on and talks also about homosexuality and bestiality. Look with me in verse 22 and 23. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to, animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Homosexuality, bestiality, these also are forbidden. Interesting that a little extra uh, commentary for these particular sins concerning homosexuality, the Lord calls it an abomination. 
That the Hebrew word there means especially sinful, detestable, and loathsome. And then also the, uh, the, the bestiality, it is perversion, a sinful mixture and unnatural act. You know, we, again, there are a lot of different ideas today, aren't there, being offered for concerning our sexuality. That, you know, one lifestyle is simply a matter of preference over another lifestyle. Who are you to say that one is right and one is wrong? Maybe that's your preference. This is my preference. And there is really even a very strong cultural move, kind of morphed into a political move now, to try and legitimate legitimate these other sexual lifestyles. So much so that as Christians, we're beginning to, as if, if you're going to believe the Bible, and if you're going to take a stand on these principles, you're going to be seen as very intolerant and very inflexible in your view. And as I said, God is the ultimate authority on these things. And God speaks very clearly. I want to show you a couple of other passages. I'm going to have you turn with me. Now, again, the reason I take the time, special time on this particular area of homosexuality is because it is such an issue in our culture. I'm responding to what's going on in our time. Turn with me. Hold your place in Leviticus. We'll be back, but I need you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Homosexuality, according to the Bible, is a sin. It is an immoral practice. It is not the only sin listed in the Bible, not by far. There are many other immoral practices. Any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, heterosexual sex outside of marriage is called fornication. It's ungodly. It's immoral. It's wrong. And we speak against that because the Bible declares it. But we speak here, especially toward homosexuality, again, because it's now being something that's trying, the culture is trying to offer as a, an alter, a viable alternative, so much so that even it, it should be accepted within the church and within Christianity. And we have proclaimed ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are openly, actively uh, involved in homosexual lifestyle. And there's an inconsistency with the Scripture. I'm in Romans chapter 1. Pick it up with me in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. 
And therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And God, as they, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Such a very clear passage of Scripture on the righteousness of God and the immorality of man and the and kind of the, the degrading cycle of men when they begin to give their minds over to their own lusts and their own passions. This is what I want to do. This is what I feel like doing. This is a drive. This is something I'm feeling. It must be okay because I want to do it. And, and clearly the scripture is saying here, listen, there must be, a, there must be self-restraint. You're not free to just follow every passion or desire of your flesh. The Bible says that the flesh and the spirit actually war against one another so that you are not free to do those things that your flesh longs and craves to do. Can you imagine a life given, giving, given itself over to every desire that it has? Well, I, it, it works for me. It makes me feel good. It's what I want to do. Therefore, it must be good because I want it. And so the Bible speaks specifically. Listen, as you give yourself over to that kind of thinking, you're going to exchange the truth, what God has laid out, for a lie. And you're going to be able to justify almost anything because you've already given up on the only truth and light that would give you clear thinking on these things once you set God's standard aside. God being very clear in the book of Leviticus, God being very clear throughout the New Testament. What are we to do in a culture today that is so, in, so intent on sexual immorality, and not just homosexuality, but I mean we're living in a time where it, the, the whole culture is sex-driven. Um, and especially, of course, some of the pressure now coming from the homosexual community. Senate Bill 48, it's a... Senate bill that we are actually petitioning to uh, to have undone. It's, a, it's the law of the state of California. Senate Bill 48 requires all public schools to include positive discussions 
of the sexual orientations of transgender, bisexual, and gay Americans in all social science courses. Nothing can reflect adversely on these lifestyles. Under Senate Bill 48, public schools will begin supplementing current instruction with pro-transgender, bisexual, and homosexual materials before textbooks are revised. Any school not in compliance with this will be in violation of the law. This will be starting in kindergarten. In our public schools, there's no, a parent cannot choose to opt out their child from this training. It comes under the guise of an anti-bullying kind of law. We want to teach everybody how to get along, and we don't want people bullying on, the, on homosexuals. Of course, I would agree bullying is not appropriate in any setting, but it's really, that's not the, what's ultimately being taught. What's being taught is into the life of our children through our public school system is that gay, bisexual, transgender lifestyles are normal, they are good, and you need to be receptive of them. For you to say they are wrong is against the law. For you to quote Leviticus would be against the law. You cannot say that one is morally right and one is morally wrong according to the law of the land in our state. So you, you get the idea of what is coming into the culture. It's an agenda. It's definitely, I think, a spiritual battle. We need to pray. We need to do what we can as Christians. We are called to be salt and light. We are called to preserve the culture and preserve the land and to bring the light of clear thinking, God's truth, God's morality. It will not be popular, and it will grow more and more unpopular. But it is, but it is something we are called not only to walk in, but something we are called to uh, stand for in our Christian life and experience. What's the answer? What about those that are caught up in sinful lifestyles. Some people are in bondage. Some are in bondage to pornography. And some are in bondage to you know, other types of addictive lifestyles. Some are in, uh, in living in the homosexual lifestyle. And they look to rationalize, well, I've just always had these, these desires. I've, I was born this way. I grew up having this kind of desire and attraction. That may be true. I know that I grew up with all kinds of sinful desires. I knew that I, I knew how to sin, you know. I can remember as soon as, the earliest memories that I have. I can remember knowing how to sin and having sinful, selfish, carnal, lustful desires. So that doesn't justify them. That doesn't mean that they are now to be accepted. God is calling me to a, a, a standard of his morality, his sense of truth. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. Paul gives a list. And again, not he's not speaking exclusively to the homosexual lifestyle. He's speaking to the, the gamut of sinful conduct and lifestyle. And he's saying, listen, don't be deceived. This kind of lifestyle and practice is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the hope and what I want, to, want you to see. And such were some of you, but God brought you out. God delivered you. God set you free and God sanctified you. That means God's doing a purifying work and changing your character, not only your mind, but your actions. There's hope for all lifestyles. There's hope for all sinners. If there weren't, none of us would have any hope. We are all just sinners. I am not picking on any particular sin tonight. I, I, I lay it out because it's such a prevalent thing in our culture. I have to respond to what's happening. But I'm saying to all lifestyles that are outside of God's instruction for morality, listen, pornography, adultery, fornication, these sexual activities that, that, that many even believers are engaged in, listen, they're wrong. God wants to set you free from that. Well, I can't help it. It's the way it is. Well, we, we're, we're going to get married. We're planning on it. Listen, God, it, God would say, I am the Lord. Will you submit to my authority in this area and be blessed? You must, first of all, recognize that God is the authority. And if there's something going on in your heart or life or practice, listen, what do you do? You repent. You say, God, forgive me. God, I need to change. God, what I'm doing is wrong. I agree with your standard. You're the authority in my life. And you come to Jesus. And you come and receive forgiveness of your sin. And you invite the Holy Spirit into your life to begin to renew you and transform you and change you. And you go on in faith. There's hope but not for those that look to justify those that say, I have no sin. No, you must confess your sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Let's go back to Leviticus, and we'll finish up here tonight. Leviticus 18. He also speaks of consequences. Consequences for a land that refuses to submit to the authority of God. In verse 24, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. 
for all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. And lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. This is interesting. I I will confess to you that I don't completely understand how this works. But there seems to be an actual defiling of the land itself. Do you remember when Cain killed his brother Abel? and shed his brother's blood. And God came to Cain and said, the blood of your brother is crying out to me. That innocent blood that was spilled in the land had a voice that God heard coming up, coming out of the land. And he seems to indicate here, listen, these nations that I'm, that I'm throwing out before you, a part of the reason I'm throwing them out is because they have defiled themselves and they have defiled the land. And the land itself is now vomiting them out. It seems to be some type of spiritual principle, some type of God-ordained consequence to a people that refuse to submit to God's authority. We'll do what we want, as we want, when we want, how we want. We will not yield or live under any kind of God authority or any kind of moral standard that He would put upon us. And over time, God keeping some kind of record of these things, ultimately the land itself will vomit them out. You don't need to turn to these, but let me just give you a reference. Some hundreds of years before the promised land, God spoke to Abraham about giving the promised land. But he said, Abraham, this is the land I'm going to give you, but not yet. It's going to be for future generations. And he said something very interesting to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 16. He said, But in the fourth generation your people shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's as though God were keeping tab on the nations. And and God was watching the, the iniquities of this people begin to fill. And God in His mercy is patient. And God waits, and God tarries, and God sends prophets, and God sends messengers, and God sends His Word, and God sends His people to try and stir the heart and bring people back to Himself. And He patiently, lovingly, but He also is keeping a total, if you will, a tally. And He said, the sins of the Amorites is not yet full. That's different than what He's saying now in Leviticus, isn't it? He's saying to Moses, The sins are full. And that's the reason I'm driving them out and bringing you in. We're going to start over in this land, and I want to start over with you, my people, and I want to give you this instruction so that you would live godly in this place. Don't defile yourselves. Don't do what they've done, lest you too be cast out. You remember in the book of Daniel, a... The Nebuchadnezzar's wicked son was kind of living ungodly in the land. 
and one of their drunken kind of parties, and he was actually uh, using some of uh, God's utensils, some of those things that they had brought back from Jerusalem. And a hand appeared on the wall in the midst of their partying and reveling. A hand comes, and, and just a hand, an invisible hand comes upon the wall and begins to write out something on the wall. That's a good way to stop a party. <laughs> an invisible hand on the wall writing out. You may remember this story. Mene, mene, tikel ufarsin. This, this lettering writes across the wall. And they're, they're frightened. What does this mean? What's happening? Call somebody to interpret this. And they called, they called Daniel. Daniel was up in years, but he comes. And this is what he says in Daniel 5.25. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tikel ufarsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tikel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. There comes a time when a land that refuses to submit to the counsel and instruction of God, the moral laws of God, the very laws of nature. That's what Romans said. Listen, men know because even creation itself speaks of right and wrong. There's something instinctively that men know and rebel against to pursue their own sinful desires. And when a nation refuses to submit to the Lord, there comes a time when even the land itself becomes judged. You know, I wonder where we are as a nation. I wonder where we are as a people. I can't help but believe that the sins of our own nation are tallying up. And I wonder if the Lord were to weigh us in the balances tonight. I wonder if we would be found wanting. I don't say this to be predict any kind of prophecy of doom or gloom. I, I have no insight, but I know the word. And I know that God will not let a people rebel and sin against him indefinitely. Something is going on in our country. Something is going on in our state. Something is going on even in our own communities. And these things add up in the heart and mind of God who's keeping good books on all of it. And the question then comes to us as the church, as the salt and light of this nation. Salt is to be a preserving force Light is to be a force for truth and righteousness. It begins in each heart and each life. I need to be a vessel walking in, these, in this kind of strength and victory. And then I need to become a shining light and a preserving salt to my generation. If you're retreating, if you're just trying to stay away from the, you know, the, the uneasy conversations, oh, don't, don't bring that up, you know, it's, it's really touchy. It's, it's a political firestorm. You'll really upset people. You'll really start arguments. Now, I'm not saying you go out and look, you know, for ways to start arguments. But God has set you and I in this culture and in this generation for such a time as this. And we as believers, we must come to the fight. We must stand in this day. We are the hope 
of our, of our nation, of our community, of our generation. And I want to challenge you with that tonight. I want to challenge your own life to respond to the authority of God in your heart and life. Come to Christ. Let Him change you. Let His Spirit begin to transform you. And then I'm going to challenge you as an individual and as a church. God, help us. Help us to be impactful. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I don't have a strategy or a game plan. God has all of that. I just want to be available. I just want to be after Him and trust that He will use my life and your path will cross and those windows will open up and you'll have those moments when you can share truth and you can be a light and you can be an example. Listen, our generation needs it. Our generation, our kids need it. Dear God, the children that are growing up in our community, marriages, who will show the world what marriage is intended to be if we don't? Who will, who will preserve the culture and the nation if we don't pray, if we don't engage in our Christian living? Tomorrow is our national day of prayer. I want to challenge you to pray. You can all pray. I don't know what to do. Here's one thing you know to do. Pray. Pray and ask the Lord to work. Ask the Lord to move. To move in your family and to move in your marriage and to move in your home. To move in your school. To move in your workplace. To move in this city. To move in the cities surrounding this community. To move in this state. To move in this nation. God, move. Work. Open doors for us to be light. For us to be effective. God is looking to preserve a people because He wants to use them as light to the nations around them. And I believe that's what God has in mind for the church of Jesus Christ as well. Let me close us in prayer, and then we're going to have just a couple of moments in prayer before we dismiss tonight. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your word of clarity. Lord, in a time of darkness, light shines even brighter. Father, tonight I'm asking that you would speak to us individually, that each of us would sense that, that calling to be salt and light in our generation. It begins in my own home. It begins in my own walk, in my own conduct. Lord, I don't want to fall into the, the Egypt of my past, nor do I want to be swayed by the Canaan of my future. I don't want to be influenced and overwhelmed by the world. God, I want to be preserved by your Spirit in the midst of this generation. I want to shine as a light. And God, not only me, but all that are here tonight, and not only us, Lord, but this church. Not only this church, but the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, we can't look for ways to accommodate and, be, and, and expect to be effective. We'll dilute our, our, our influence, Lord. We'll lose the only thing that we have, and that's you. Your integrity, your spirit, your light, your, your absolutes. We must hold these things, Lord, and we must engage in our own heart and in whatever opportunity you would open before us. As our heads are bowed here tonight,